All right, so I'm going to play you some songs, and I just want to hear your reaction to them. This was like in 1992. My parents were working at a flea market and it was just one of the songs that was always on repeat and I was just really fascinated by it and I was just a kid and I thought it was just like the coolest music ever, like super awesome but also hardcore and also like the melodically it really did change my perspective on just what like a regular pop song could sound like. It was mind-blowing at the time. For those of you who aren't familiar, that was November Rain by Guns N' Roses. I'm going to play you another one. To the folks, Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Unfadeable, so please don't try to. Whether you were into it or not, that was just a song that pretty much set West Coast rap on the map. After that, I became pretty obsessed with like Snoop Dogg and just listening to uh, Doggy Style and The Chronic, everyone from like Death Row Records and Tupac. So that was a song that was the gateway for me to get into West Coast rap. That was Nothing But A G Thing by Dr. Dre. I'm going to play you one more, okay? I was a child impersonator, and Gloria Trevi was the artist that I would impersonate. My mom made me like a little costume with the glittery, like the holes in your pantyhose everywhere, the ripped shoes. And I also had like the long hair and the curly long hair. So when you like would frizz it out, it kind of did look like her. So it's a little, it's a little embarrassing, but I mean, it's so like now, but it's, I mean, it is part of the, the formative years of me getting obsessed in, in music. So that song was, it was my favorite and her most popular hit that kind of embodied that like right girl energy. And that was Pelo Suelto by Gloria Trevi. I'm Alan Lilienthal, and you're listening to Only Here, a KPBS podcast about unexplored subcultures, creativity, and conflict at the U.S.-Mexico border. Today, we're going to trace the story of how Latin music became as popular as American pop music, all through the eyes of Isabela Raigosa. Isabela is a music journalist from Tijuana and San Diego whose career very closely paralleled the boom in Latin music that's happened over the past decade. Back in the day, when Latin stars wanted to cross over, they would have to start singing in English. Nowadays, you have music icons crossing over the other way, singing in Spanish, like the Beyonce J Balvin collab you're hearing right now. Latin audiences keep growing and musicians want to connect. Drake. Frank Ocean. Cardi B. Huge names, all singing in Spanish. Musicians like Bad Bunny and J Balvin 
who only sing in Spanish, performed at the 2019 Super Bowl alongside Shakira and J-Lo. That would have been unheard of just a few years ago. It's now completely normal to hear Spanish songs on American pop radio. Isabella witnessed and contributed to this transformation from the front lines. She was the first person to write about J Balvin for Rolling Stone. She writes for big music platforms like Billboard, the Latin Grammys, and Remezcla, to name just a few. She's now the Latin music editor at SoundCloud. Her path to being a real-life music journalist, though, was long and windy. It all started with a deep love for music. During our interview, Isabella was quarantined at her apartment in New York, and I was in a closet in San Diego. She's obviously a huge fan of music, so I started the conversation by asking her if she ever played music. I started playing at 16, 15, 16, so it was a little later. I was already in high school. Actually, the song that inspired me to want to play guitar was Maria uh, by Café Tacuba, and it has this really beautiful melodic intro with like nylon strings. It was sort of the, the first song that also allowed me to appreciate Latin music that was new uh, at that era and wanted me to explore it a lot more, like the rock en español or like the alternative rock wave. And I went to Guadalajara with my grandmother for a month and my parents were like, just go to Mexico, to Guadalajara for like the whole summer because you're being a bad kid, you're getting into trouble. So maybe getting away would do you some good. And I told my mom, hey, when I get back home, uh, I know that my dad mentioned he, that he had a guy that taught guitar is there a way that maybe he can come by our booth? Like we still worked at the flea market because he would be a customer and maybe he can give me classes in exchange for some of the stuff that he buys from you guys anyways. And he's like, yeah, let me talk to your dad about that. And then he just started teaching me a lot of the vintage stuff more than anything because he came, he, he's a lot older than my dad. So he started teaching me things like, like boleros and like even just like Jose Jose or like Leo Dan. So even just the music that I didn't want to learn, but I then became pretty knowledgeable of it because the guy taught me how to play it. In high school, then I started learning with my friends and I started playing like Radiohead and uh, Nirvana and like Smashing Pumpkins and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it seems like from Guns N' Roses to Gloria Trevi, it seems like you're someone with very diverse music tastes where you didn't really draw a clear line between Latin music and American popular music, you could say, which is becoming more and more normal today. But back then, when you were younger, it wasn't that common. Growing up at the flea market, it kind of did set a different president for me. Being at the flea market where I was exposed to just culture, 
through you know like uh sound systems playing there and like people like doing little competitions with like music and it was all from different artists like american artists and also like latin artists but also just being close to the border where like norteñas and rancheras were very prominent at the time but also just being so close to the border too that uh you would get american music very accessible there all the performers that were even like nirvana at that time was playing in tijuana like a bunch of the times i never went because i was a kid but i remember a lot of the people that I knew at the time saw Nirvana at Iguanas. I feel that it made me a lot more perceptive to appreciate that kind of diversity because um, it made me still feel close to even being like from Southern California, but also like just Mexico with having parents that are from into ranchera music. So it was just all part of like this upbringing that I had. And at some point, you, you were never really planning on being a music journalist, right? I, I know at some point when you were on your way to adulthood, you went to Outside Lands in the music festival in the Bay Area. It seems like the way you got in there was a little bit uh, unusual. I was living in Berkeley. Um, I was a student, an undergrad at Berkeley. I I felt like, how, what what is the way that I can actually go into this festival and not like sneak in like so obviously, but I was going to try to go in for free. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to try to interview an artist and say that I'm a journalist and that I work for the school newspaper. And I had like all my equipment, like my, my notepad and my recorder and everything. I saw the person that seemed a bit more like naive, I suppose, to say like, hey, well, um, I'm actually in a hurry. Can you please uh, let me in immediately because I'm late for my interview with Devendra Benhart. The guy was like, oh, yeah, sure, go right ahead. And I was like, what? Like that really worked like so smoothly. So when no one was looking, I kind of made myself go into the VIP and then I ran into Devender Benhart's band and I said, oh my God, hey, well, I write for the newspaper and, and then the guy was like, oh, so would you like to have um, our manager's number? So they gave me the, the manager's number and I called the manager and I asked to interview Devender Benhart. And it was like, yeah, hey, actually, we have like an open spot because somebody canceled or whatever. So I ended up actually interviewing the vendor Ben Hart by just uh, trying to be in the festival in the first place. <laughs> the, the stars aligned. <laughs> they really did at that time, yeah. Did you? So how did the interview go with having no experience being a journalist? How how did he, how how did that go? I think it actually went really well because I already knew so much about his music. I was uh, like, I was also kind of obsessed with him too. And I also know how to like contain myself. I'm not going to like present myself like, I am such a big fan. Like I was actually asking him questions like about, hey, uh, you started off as a freak folk artist, but like this album has a lot more ingredients and you even got a collaboration with Ga Gael Garcia Bernal, who's an actor. very much like replying to me like if I was a person that had done his research on him which I had as a fan I just had the fortunate um, situation and I already knew kind of a lot about his work so at that time in 2006 uh, Latin music obviously didn't have anywhere near the reach it does today I think there was starting to be more crossover with like gasolina and stuff like that, but it was nowhere near the boom of the last few years. How did your own tastes 
fit in with a larger culture in terms of Latin music and American pop music at that time? What is interesting is that I actually didn't really know a lot about like the reggaeton boom that was happening. I mean, I did on a larger scale, like Gasolina. I didn't obviously understand the entire scene of reggaeton with like The Noise and Evie Queen and Wisin Yandel and Daddy Yankee and all of them. Even if I heard Gasolina, associated it in like the quinceanera wedding kind of circuit. I remember just hearing a lot like Elvis Crespo, like everything that we would hear at a quinceanera song today, like suavemente. Suavemente, besame, que quiero sentir tus labios, besándome otra vez. Suave, besame, besame, suave, besame otra vez. So that's how I interpreted those huge relevant hits at that time. Did you have any sense of how big Latin music would become? Definitely not. Even though for me there were always one world, one reality, one existence, I knew that in the larger uh, scale, these were like two completely different worlds. And my entire life, I've always struggled to separate not my I'm not gonna say my identity but like my knowledge in perfecting a language like Spanish and English um, I went to school in elementary in both the uh, the U.S. and in Mexico I really did try to make an effort to study abroad in Mexico City when I was an undergrad to actually get more acquainted with like the Mexican uh, and Latin roots that that I have but then of course being a student in Berkeley um, and continuing evolving my English so I never really thought that uh, to answer your question what that uh, Latin music would cross over into not only the American sphere but like the global sphere After Isabella's serendipitous experience at Outside Lands she still wasn't set on being a journalist Initially, she was just stoked on the idea of going to shows for free, meeting her heroes, and being able to talk to them about the music she loved so much. Her early years being surrounded by music at the flea markets in Tijuana really birthed in her an obsession with knowing everything you could know about an artist and what went into making a moment in music. Ironically though, having grown up on both sides of the border and constantly switching between English and Spanish is what almost kept her from following her passion. Spanglish was my first language and my biggest challenge was perfecting English and Spanish at the same time. I felt like I was pretty weak in both when I speak conversationally 100%. So I was always intimidated to speak my mind because I felt that the way I would convey it would be not the right way that I wanted to express it. So I started working with numbers and I got really good with numbers that I got accepted as, as a math major into UC, UC Berkeley. But when I began taking the classes and then this, this whole Outside Lands Festival event happened and I was always just into music, I realized that even just living into Berkeley, it expand my horizon so much because I was always accustomed to like seeing the the, the traditional thing that will happen if I stay in San Diego like all my friends is like have a baby get married like you know have a little bit of an education and just continue the cycle of being a family household wife right and that was like that was my destiny I actually believed it 100% that that was going to be my destiny 
I had a relationship for like three or four years when I was still a teenager. And I remember that person telling me, oh, I'm going to have so many babies with you. We're going to have like nine. And I remember like crying at home to my mom. Like, mom, I don't want to have it. I don't want to have kids, mom. Like, I don't want to have like, especially nine kids, you know? And like when I went to Berkeley and then I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to study math. I'm going to study whatever I want to do. So then I became like very, very, very like like mentally liberated just living in berkeley from so many ways and and even beyond like music journalism it was like something like you know what i'm like hey we we only live life once right and not not to have like the whole yolo spirit or anything but i figured that why not do something that i'm like truly passionate about so music was the obvious passion at this point, but there's a million possible jobs in music, and Isabella wasn't super clear yet on which one she wanted to follow. So she applied for a master's program in media, culture, and communication at NYU and moved to New York. While she was there, she interned at places like Vice and MTV World, and again, like at Outside Lands, a mixture of serendipity and her encyclopedic knowledge of music opened new opportunities. While still an intern, she ended up writing her first article for MTV on border musicians. This was in 2010, and everybody was fascinated with Tijuana and the whole music that was coming out of Tijuana, which was Ruido Sol, Los Macuanos, Mare Jose, Norte Collective. I felt like, hey, well, that's where I'm from and I want to give you the information like in a more genuine way because this is something that I'm very close to. And I coincidentally um, had been writing about border culture for my thesis, for both my undergraduate thesis and then my master's thesis. My subject was uh, music pertaining to the border. So I had naturally already done th this research and been fascinated by like the border diaspora, but at the same time, um, like resisting the border, right? Like fronterizos who like make music to shatter the concept of the, of what a border is. So uh, that was the first article that I wrote as an intern for MTV. So after the internships, when you started applying for jobs as a journalist, did having this kind of bilingual pocho brain where you didn't feel super masterful in either language, did that pose any challenges or any pushback from editors? It did for a really long time. And they sort of thought that they were not conned, but saying like, wow, you presented yourself as somebody who is so knowledgeable, so passionate. You were able to verbally tell me all these exciting stories. But when you put them on paper, like you have so many grammatical errors, like your your homonyms are all over the place. Your syntax is just warped. And sometimes they would not want to work with me anymore because it caused them more difficulty to edit my work than then. But the content that I was bringing them was content that was like very curatable. It took Isabella a couple of years to really find confidence in her writing, but she persisted and eventually became the editor at Remezcla, an online media and culture hub for all things Latinx. Remezcla has always had its ear on the pulse of emerging Latin trends, so Isabella was really able to find her footing and learn to trust her journalistic instincts while working there. At that time, fueled by the internet, the cross-pollination of traditional Latin genres with modern ones was becoming more and more prevalent. The border scene was producing Norteño-inspired electronic music, like this Norte Collective song you're hearing right now. 
At the same time, Chile had a thriving underground pop scene with artists like Alex Anwanter, Jepe, and one of my favorites, Ana Tiju. All over Latin America, there was more collaging of cultures happening. Remezcla understood that language very well. It was kind of encouraged to, you know, promote the Spanglish. A lot of the musicians that we were like reviewing and featuring on Remezcla were musicians that were incorporating uh, American-leaning electronic music, uh, but also very inspired by roots and tradition. This gradual acceptance of a new language has a lot to do with demographics. Latin people make up a consistently larger percentage of the American population, so it makes sense that popular culture reflects that. For me, growing up and moving to the U.S., speaking English well felt like the only way to really belong. I would honestly get embarrassed when I would visit my family in Mexico and Spanglish would come out, like I was somehow inadequate or failing at my roots, which seems crazy now. I love being able to dance between the two languages, and I love that the music of our times reflect that shift. But that shift was slow, and for it to even get to music, it started happening in all kinds of spaces. Isabella's professors at university were also encouraging their students to fully own their identities. They started writing academic books using a lot of Spanish words that cannot be properly translated into English. And they would make a point to say, hey, we should embody these in our like everyday language. Uh, so they, they, they had already instilled in my head that hey, the, there are a lot of words that you can convey better in Spanish than that are not accessible in English. So that was another point that was very, very true to me, whereas other um, like editors that were not from the Latin descent or, the, you know, they, ha they didn't have the heritage wouldn't see it the same way. Right. Until I began to work with other people that were of color as well. And do you think like now it's established as culturally acceptable, this Spanglish and going between the two languages? Very much so, yes. And uh, in a decade, a lot has evolved since we see Drake singing in Spanish. Yeah. Nicki Minaj, Romeo Santos, like instilling bachata in like, you know, American mainstream outlets. And even selling out like the MetLife as most uh, sold out seats, beating uh, U2 in 2010. And he just beat the record last year. Um, also, even just with reggaeton, like the roots of reggaeton, how it started, it was just a mis mishmash of like the Bronx hip hop with Jamaican dembow with the Panamanian reggae in Espanol, and then all concocted in Puerto Rico to create this mishmash of genres that they dubbed reggaeton with, you know, adding adding these these new drum beats and except and like the way that you perform it. So now that when you even see a reggaeton song, uh, like at you know number one when despacito happened i think that it became more globally accepted to fuse languages justin bieber doing the remix you know <laughs> so latin music has consistently been able to prove to continue its power 
by continuing to produce number one hits in like the, the top 40s. More and more artists wanting to now cross over into singing in Spanish and using Latin rhythms definitely does say a lot about the acceptance of both languages and cultures. Despacito. Yeah, I've, I've always really felt like San Diego and Tijuana have this, maybe I'm biased because I'm from here, but I've we have this very unique possibility I've always felt to be kind of a music capital, especially now more than ever, where Latin America and American popular music are more intertwined than ever. Here, cross-pollination is not only musical, you know, it's economic, it's cultural, the workforce, everything is so intertwined here that I feel like this creates this almost impossible to label dynamic, you know, like, because more so in Tijuana, but obviously they're impossible to separate, but people from all over the world, all over Mexico, all over Latin America come here seeking a better life. And it's like, it's kind of Mexican, but not really. It's kind of American, but not really. So it defies classification. And this kind of dynamic is, it's fascinating. I mean, it's kind of what gave birth to my own band, this like un discomfort with being put into one genre or one language and just wanting to create music that's inspired by by what created us i'm curious what what are your views on the how the border music scene has evolved over the past since you wrote that article and how you see its future unfolding uh i'm always excited when um, a band reaches out to me saying like oh we're you know we're from tijuana we're doing like hip-hop and this and that and the the way that i've seen it uh i guess uh, differently is that a lot of the bands now might be more influenced by caribbean music like reggaeton back then when uh, a decade ago reggaeton wasn't as commonly heard as it was always in the east coast right um tijuana uh, and and or just the west coast in general or socal uh ended up uh appreciating it a lot later like even with Romeo Santos and Bachata I remember that my mom didn't know who Romeo Santos probably in 2010 but now everybody he's a household name another thing that I do want to point out that is right to your question is the emergence of like the Corrido Urbanos wave like Natanael Cano Me la navego en todos lados, siempre con ojos tumbados, en la bola destacado, siempre pienso con to provide a little context, this Corrido Urbano or Urban Corrido Wave Isabella is talking about is a new hybrid genre that teenagers who grew up on an equal dose of regional Mexican music and SoundCloud rap are creating in real time. Corridos are a popular folk music tradition in Mexico that involves storytelling. They became a pillar of Mexican music during the Mexican Revolution, where musicians would document the times and sing about socially relevant topics like oppression and history. They're somewhat ballady and continue to be very prevalent. In the 1970s, a new wave of corridos emerged called narco-corridos, songs about the narco-universe, drug ballads. Most of the songs talk about drug traffickers, arrests, betrayals, shootouts, and they also touch on related topics like political corruption and immigration to the U.S. They continue to be extremely popular, especially in the north of Mexico. That is something that is very fascinating, specifically on the border. Like these kids um, that are like 17, 18, 19 years old are playing like corridos, narco corridos. Like they're not only are they still continuing to sing the like music that is like of roots to them, that is very much pertained to the border. But even with this whole like uh, 
uh, trap corridos or corridos urbanos, they're like mixing elements of like trap with the trap vibrato and like the ly lyricism and the way they, the attitude and the, the image and even like the bat hoodies that they wear is very much associated with like trap culture or like uh, Tercer Elemento, right? Uh, also, a kid who didn't even grow up speaking um, Spanish, who only speaks mainly English, but sings purely in Spanish like Selena did back in the day in the 90s. This is Aerolínea Carrillo by Tercer Elemento, featuring Gerardo Ortiz. So you see all these like border kids not only having to even just say, hey, like, uh, this is the, the, parent, the music that my parents listen to, but I don't even speak Spanish myself, but I am, this is where I'm from. These are already like second and third generation border kids that are already embracing kind of like the new era of where we're at today, but still doing music that is very much linked to, you know, the Latin roots and Latin music. Yeah, I remember when I first went down that rabbit hole on YouTube, I was fascinated just hearing these corridos and the visuals the videos are like pure hip-hop it was they're so hip-hop it was amazing they're like sipping on lean like yeah, you know, it was i couldn't believe my eyes me and my bandmates were sitting there watching this like wow this is what a crazy time we live in you wouldn't even think by hearing the music that that what is the vi that's the visual right 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 When Isabella got her first big job as a music journalist in 2011 as the editor of Remezcla, she started an ongoing column called Borderline Latin. She would take different songs by non-Latin artists and trace how Latin music and rhythms influenced the composition of that song. There was one in particular that I really liked where she took a song called So Broken by Bjork and compared it to a telenovela. Telenovelas are a, a, a big, uh, influential, just subject to a lot of, of a, a lot of uh, people. Even like Morrissey, right? Like how how like Mexicans are fascinated by Morrissey. I thought that was just also very interesting because he's so melodramatic, and and that's mm. you know, and uh, Latin people are all about everything melodrama. <laughs> I just got, wow, I've always wondered why in Mexico people are obsessed with Morrissey or The Cure or like these super melodramatic bands. And that makes sense, that link with telenovelas, that's a clear correlation. And even to take it a little bit more deeper, because I wrote uh, something brief about Mexicans' unlikely fascination with Morrissey. He was an immigrant, right? Like, I, like uh, from the Irish background and grew up sort of like a loner. So when he sang, it was like very self-deprecating. Kind of like the Chente songs, how like they're like self-pitting rampages over tragos amargos, tragos amargos, right? Like how Chente does these like self-pitting rampages, like ah. You know, very like passionate. Um, I felt that like Morrissey is the same way too, like in terms of lyrical content, like how you could make music that is like it's okay to wither in self-pity but it 
but it's for a purpose because of like love or like loss or something like that. <laughs> it's for art. <laughs> it's for art. So during our conversation, Isabella and I were both at our respective homes on opposite sides of the country, quarantined like most of you. Everyone is deeply affected, and the music industry, which really depends on crowds, is in a particular state of uncertainty. No one knows when music venues are going to reopen. Big music festivals are off the table until at least 2021, and there's just no way to know how all of this will unfold. Naturally, people are adapting. Festivals like EDC and conferences like the Latin Alternative Music Conference are going to be online this summer. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how creative people are getting. One of my the artists that I follow a lot, um, she partnered with Grindr. And she's like, yeah, we're going to be doing this live stream through Grindr. You know, everyone's staying at home. Like everything's going up, right? Even even like the like porn views and like uh, music and like you know just a lot of things are like gaining more uh, uh, like traction, you know, like online. So uh, it's funny how even she thought of like combining those two together like, and then just like performing on her. And I saw it; she was just performing on her stage, like doing like a little karaoke of her own music on her own living room, and to see musicians being that intimate in like their own house with their own equipment and it's just something a little more relaxed and not like highly produced. It's a, a another lens that is appreciated from uh, people um, adjusting to the new times. The artist Isabella is talking about is Javiera Mena, an electro pop musician from Chile. She performed on Instagram Live under Grindr's handle in early April. Thank you so much, Isabella, for your time. That was super fun. Can you give us one song from from a border band that we can go out on? One song from a border band? I, I want to hear you, you, you. What, what, what do you... Like one like, song that I like? No, like what you play. I want to hear a little bit more about your band. I wasn't expecting Isabella to turn the journalist tables on me, but I guess it is her job. So I won't tell y'all the whole story of Tu Lengua. We'll save that for a future episode. But we are a bilingual, mostly hip-hop band with members from both sides of the border here in Tijuana and San Diego. And chances are, if you can name a genre, we've either tried it or we'll be trying it shortly. We really like to apply our borderless ideals to our music. Here's a song called Fruta de tu Flor. Dicen agua es sagrada en su fuente, toda llena de veneno pero vende. Yo no creo en la pobreza de mi gente, hay riqueza y un gobierno que nos miente. Yeah, pienso que no es con la mente, que merecemos algo que nos acontente. Ya no sé si quiera otro presidente, a lo mejor todo un sistema diferente. This episode of Only Here was written and produced by me and Emily Jankowski. Emily is also the director of sound design. It was edited by Curtis Fox. Lisa Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is the director of programming. KPBS podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. Go to kpbs.org to make a donation or become a member today. Thank you. Siempre está cercana, prende mi dolor y me lo sana, yeah. y todo cambia.